0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: So we are going to be studying this morning in uh, the book of Numbers, of course. We're continuing in the book of Numbers. Uh, And we're going to look at um, last time we studied this text together, this parsha Beha Alotcha, we studied the uh, episode of complaining in the desert. um, And we talked about it from Ilana Pardes's work about the biography of ancient Israel, where she imagines Israel as a character, as a fictional character, and what what that character goes through. And that we talked about the birth being at the Exodus, coming through the birth waters, right, all of that stuff. And then we talked about the desert experience being the experience of weaning. So all of the emotions that go along with weaning for an infant. So the satisfaction of the breast and then the rage when the breast is taken away, Um, all of that kind of powerlessness that the infant feels and therefore all the rage that comes with that and the resistance and the um, lack of control and the the, 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 mom, you know, mom kind of having the nerve to separate at all. And, and just all, all of the complicated stuff that goes along with that. So that's what we looked at last year when we looked at this, this idea of um, the Israelites complaining in the desert. So I want to look at it again this year, that same text, but I want to look at it a little differently oh, always, of course. Um, But I want to focus on one part that, you know, me, I like to bring you what, I never saw before that like when I start reading commentary and go, whoa, okay. I never saw that. Um, and so we're going to do that with one part of the text. So let's look first, of course, at the text itself. We're going to be in the book of numbers, chapter 10 verse. We're going to start it. Thank you. Verse 33. Thank you, Lisa. What would I do without Lisa? So do you know, uh, the rabbis when uh, they would learn with children, they would learn Talmud with children. Um, Talmud is this huge page, this very, very big page. You know, you've seen a book of Talmud. Some of you, it's like really big. So for a kid to learn all that text on that page and be able to like prove to the teacher that they know it is a huge accomplishment for um, young kids. So the rabbis would take something very, 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 very precious and very expensive, which was honey, and they would put it on the corner of the page of Talmud. And once the student learned that daf, that page of Talmud, they got to lick the honey off the page so that Torah learning should be sweet and it should be associated with sweetness. Um, and so that's why we have muffins at Torah study for those of us who are in the room. OK, so we are we're dealing with um, the the Israelites, right? We've gotten a lot has gone on uh, and Mo- and Moshe goes to his father-in-law and says, why don't you stay with us? God will be gracious to you. And we don't get told why, but what we get told is he says, no, thank you. Um, his father-in-law here is called Chovav ben Reuel uh, from Midian. So uh, a different tradition of a different name for Moshe's father-in-law, not Yitro. He's not called Jethro here. He's called Chovav. Um, All right, so um, he's going to go back to Midian. He's going to go back to his native land. Um, Moshe begs him, please don't leave us. Like, you know, you're a guy who knows a lot. You have a lot of connections uh, out here in the desert. And he says, well, sorry, that's not going to happen. All right, so we're going to pick up at 33. So they they set out from mehar adonai notice this notice this pairing of words mehar from the mountain of yothevah we don't get sinai called that other places it is very rare for sinai to be called har yothevah so they set out mehar adonai from the mountain of god a 3 days journey and the uh, the ark of the covenant of yothevah Traveled before them by three days to seek out a place for them to rest, meaning for them to make camp. And the cloud of Yudhei Bovei was over them. Excuse me, when they would go from uh, from the camp. And you all should know this. You could probably sing many of you this verse: Vayehi Binso Aha Moshe Kuma Adonai. How do we know how to sing that? Those of us who are singing that, this is part of the Torah service. The rabbis put this piece of Torah to begin the Torah service. It was when the ark would set out and Moshe would say, Kuma Adonai, get up, rise up, Adonai. And scatter your enemies and have those who hate you flee from before you. And when it stopped, Moshe would say, Shuva Adonai, return, O God, you who are Israel's myriads, myriad of thousands. Okay, why did I start at 33? <laughs> You'll see. All right, but remember, that's where I started. I started at the when they they set out from the mountain of. Because that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time. Believe it or not. All right. So this is where usually we understand the whole complaining business to start. How? And the people were as complainers. K means as, like. So the people were like complainers. This was bad in the ears of God. And God Heard, meaning they're complaining. And God's nostrils flared. That is always a very, very bad thing when God's nostrils flared. This is a euphemism for getting angry. Right, and God was like incensed with them. And ish, and a fire broke out against them. And it started to eat, to consume the edges of the camp. All right. What are they complaining about? <laughs> Trick question. We don't know. We don't know. It's kind of odd. The nation became as complainers. And it was evil in the ears of God. And God heard. And God got angry. So they're obviously actually complaining what are they complaining about we don't know it's very odd that we get this whole business god is super angry god causes a fire to break out and we're not even told what the people are complaining about all right now we get mm-hmm. so the people cry out you as usual right Fire starts in the desert. That is a very, very bad thing, right? Most everything they have is flammable, including their flocks and their children, right? So it's like, this is a bad thing. So what do they do? Of course, they they cry out to Moses and Moshe prays on their behalf and the fire dies down. So Moshe is the intermediary, but it's bad enough that Moshe has to intercede on their behalf. And the place was called Tav uh, because that's where the fire va'ara it, bomb it it broke out against them. All right. So now we have they left the mountain of God. They are complaining about something we don't know what. Now we get a very specific incident. Beginning at verse four, the asaf suf the riffraff that was in their midst literally in Hebrew, craved a craving. So verse four, Hit avu ta'ava. they craved a craving. In the language of Zornberg, they desired a desire. And so they, they, they craved a craving and they wept and they said, Who will feed us flesh? Who will feed us meat? We remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt, right? It was free. What what was the cost? Only, you know, their freedom. Only their freedom. Um, And the uh, cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Now our gullets are shriveled. There is nothing at all. Nothing but what? Oh yeah, the miraculous man that God causes to fall every day and two portions on Friday so they'll have enough for Shabbos. Yeah, that's all they have to eat. is this miraculous food that gives them all of the nutrients that, that they need. That's all they have. Their gullets are shriveled. Now we have a note from the editor. The haman and the mana was like coriander seed, and in color, it was like bdellium. So now we're clear. We're very clear what man was like. Now we all have a very clear picture. Uh, And the people would go and gather it and grind it between millstones or pound it in a mortar, boil it in a pot, and make it into cakes. It tasted like rich cream. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the mana would fall upon it. So this is all the editor's note, meaning mana was a yummy thing. You could do lots of different kinds of things with it, and it tasted like rich cream. So what are they fetching about, right? This is according to the, the parenthetic, parenthetical notes that we get here. All right. Some want to say this do business is about what mana actually refers to, a phenomenon in the desert where the, there's a certain kind of sap that falls from trees that is very high in carbohydrates and is sweet and um fills a lot of uh actual nutritional need so, so that's how some people survive in in a desert climate but we're not doing that today all right uh, moses heard the people crying weeping le each one to their mishpacha their clan remember how we had them Designated by Mishpacha, by clan. Well, now we're getting what were they? That was their designation. That's how they were supposed to camp. That's how they were supposed to live together. And what do they do? Now they weep and gnash their teeth, right? And shry by clan at the entrance of each tent. God was very angry. God's nostrils flared a lot. Um, and and in the eyes of Moshe, this was bad. So we've gotten Ra twice. God hears. And for, for God hearing, it's Ra. It's bad. Moshe sees what's happening. And for Moshe, what he sees is Ra, is evil, is bad. By Yom HaMishael Adonai, Moshe says to God, why have you dealt with your servant this way? And why have I not enjoyed your favor that you have laid the burden of this people on me? I, I totally get it. Yeah. Did just, just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Did I, did, did I birth this people, right? Did I birth them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a caregiver carries an infant to the land that you promised on oath to their ancestors. What meat? To give all this people, when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry this people by myself. It is too much. If you would deal thus with me, kill me rather, I beg you. And let me see no more of my rah. Third time, we get rah, right? Let me no longer see my yuckiness, right? Um it's translated here, wretchedness, but it's using the same word, rah. Like this is horrible for Moshe. Then God said to Moshe, gather for me 70 elders of whom you have experience as elders and officers of the people and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their place there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will draw upon the spirit that is on you and put it upon them. They shall share the burden of the people with you. You shall not bear it alone. We do know there were... Seventy There was this council of elders um, that was also involved in uh, legislating for uh, ancient Israel. And say to the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have kept whining before you and saying, if only we had meat to eat. Indeed, we were better off in Egypt. Adonai will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two, not even five, five days or 10 or 20, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you for you have rejected Jehovah who was among you by whining before God and saying oh why did we ever leave egypt but moses said the people who are with me number 600,000 yet you in terms of soldiers yet you say i will give them enough meat for a whole month okay would you would you say that to the eternal Wait a minute. You're going to give them meat for a whole month? Have you seen how many people there are over here? Okay. Could enough flocks and herds be slaughtered to suffice them or could all the fish in the sea be gathered for them to suffice them? And God answered Moses, "Is there a limit to YHWH's power? You shall soon see whether what I have said happens to you or not." Moses went out and reported the words of God to the people. He gathered 70 of the people's elders and stationed them around the tent. Then after coming down in a cloud and speaking to him, God drew upon the spirit that was upon him and put it upon the 70 participating elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they spoke in ecstasy. So this is where it comes from, people. One of the places it comes from in the Christian tradition is from this, right? Speaking in right the ruach, the spirit rests on them. And when the spirit rests on them, they speak in ecstasy. Two of the participants, one named Eldad and the other Medad, had remained in camp. Yet the spirit rested upon them. So they they were not with the 70 elders, right? God said, bring me 70 elders and I'll take from off of you some Ruach and put it on them. Eldad and Medad stayed in the camp and yet the Ruach was on them. And they were among those recorded um, and they spoke in ecstasy in the camp an assistant ran out to Moses and said, Eldad and Madad are acting the prophet in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun Moshe's attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, my Lord Moses, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you wrought up on my account? Would that all God's people were prophets, that God put the divine spirit on all of them. Moses then re-entered the camp together with the elders of Israel. And now we get the incident with the God sweeps up a Uh, wind and quail from the sea and strews them over the camp Um, and the people eat meat and then um, the meat was still between their teeth not yet chewed when the anger of God blazed forth against the people and God struck the people with a very severe plague and everybody who'd been involved in the complaining about the meat business got dead okay We are very clear about that story. We are very clear what they're complaining about. We are very clear that Moses has had it. Moses is absolutely reaching his breaking point. Moshe, at this point, I would say, is a classic case of burnout, right? Kill me now. Kill me now. I cannot handle the burden of this people. I can't do it. And so that God seems to address with some Rahmanas. God seems to get that this people's a lot to deal with as leaders, right? So God answers that with a a solution. God answers that with a plan. But what about the, the quail business? Now that is seen completely to be, by God, unreasonable, right? That is completely unreasonable. And so they are punished pretty severely. There is a season in the desert where... Quail, like, come and land in massive numbers. They're exhausted. It's part of the flyover that they do for migration. And they land exhausted in Israel um, and are very easy to kill because they land en masse and they're completely exhausted. And so they are very easy to kill in large numbers. So this phenomenon does happen. So this doesn't come, like, out of nowhere, right, this story. There is... There is natural evidence for something like this. So it makes perfect sense. This is how it would be solved, right? Giving them meat. All right, let's go back to Ba'i Mehar Adonai. So why did I start there? We understand that the people have sinned twice. Once complaining and the other complaining about basar, complaining about meat and wanting to go back to Egypt, right? Longing for Egypt. We're going to hand out the source sheet. So we're going to start. So here's our verse. So they leave the mountain of God a distance of three days. So we're not sure why God's so angry. We can imagine God's kind of starting to be fed up with this people. See what I did there? Pardon the pun. They, God is like fed up with this people. Um, but the, the commentators want to say it's even worse than what we have here. It's even worse than what, what we see in the text as explicit. And so they're going to read into this verse, uh, verse 33, that they, they left the mountain of God. So let's go to Ramban. No, sorry. This is the Talmud, Shabbat 116a. So that's on the back of your first page if you have a hard copy in front of you. So this is from the Babylonian Talmud, 116a. As it was taught in a baraita that Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says, In the future, this portion, which portion? This portion. They marched, right? They marched out. You see this nun here on the screen? That is a backwards, upside down nun. There's another one um, that's, I can't find it. It's not here in our text, but it's right before this. So these are brackets. These are a scribal tradition of a kind of parentheses, that you need to know that for to understand the commentary. So, Rabbi Shivan Ben Gamil said, "In the future, this portion will be uprooted from here where it appears and will be written in its proper place. Meaning, those nuns are there to designate the part of the Torah that, in the you know, in time to come, will be lifted out of there and moved to its proper place. Well, then, why was it written here?" even though it discusses the travels of the people of Israel and the portion before it does not. So why we just got the the traveling a second ago, you wouldn't know that, but about blowing trumpets when they're supposed to move and how they're supposed to go. And when you blow this, they do this. And when you blow that, they do that. So why is this here? Why does this get dropped here that they journeyed out three days um, and the ark would go in front of them by three days? Why is that here? The Talmud is asking because It is in order to demarcate between the first punishable offense and the second punishable offense. What's the second punishable offense? That which appears immediately after. And the people complained wickedly in God's ears, right? And God becomes angry, blah, blah, blah. Well, if that's the second offense, what, asks the Talmud, is the first offense? Since we've said this nun, this traveling business, comes to separate The first offense from the second offense. Well, we only get one. We get complaining. What's the offense before that? The offense before that is the verse, and they traveled from the mountain of God, Mehar Adonai, for three days. Okay, duh. Perfect explanation, right? Right? Makes total sense. Like, makes no sense at all. So now they have to explain it. So Rabbi Hama, son of Rabbi, Rabbi Hanina, said that they turned from after God. So don't read, remember I showed you those two words, mehar Adonai, from the mountain of God. They misread on purpose those two words to say, Ahare Adonai. They turned not from the mountain of God, but they turned from following God and hurriedly fled Mount Sinai. The Gemara asks, and if so, where is the proper, proper place for this paragraph? And Rav Ashi says, in the portion where we were talking about the flags and the way people, a few parshiot go, the way with the flags and where they camp and blah, blah, blah. That's where this text will go eventually. Okay. The only reason I bring this piece of the Talmud to you is to say, the Talmud already is saying, leaving the mountain of God was the first sin. There were three. And when you get three in Jewish tradition, it's major, right? It's major. So that's how the Talmud, that's how the rabbis start to try to explain God being so angry. That by the time we get to the meat, it's the third punishable offense of the people. The first being they left the mountain of God. So here, don't read, they left the mountain of God. Read, instead, they left, me'acharei Adonai, from going after God. Okay. So now let's look at Ramban, Nachmanides. So Nachmanides starts at the bottom of uh, yours, the complaining that we don't know what they were complaining about. That's the second. And the third is the complaining about me. Because that second one gets resolved. They complain, we don't know why, and then a fire starts. Then Moshe intercedes and the fire dies down. Then we get a whole nother episode, right? Although some people want to say these are variant traditions of the same episode, but it doesn't matter. The rabbis are reading. There's two. Well, if God's that angry, there must be a third. What's the third? It's leaving the mountain. But I, I really loved some of what Zornberg had to say about this. So I want to unpack it. So Ramban, Nachmanides comes to say, and it came to pass when the ark set forward right? So that was our verse, right? And it happened that they, they set forward. God, the Eternal, made for this section, this verse and the following one, a special mark in front of it and behind it by placing two inverted letters, nun, at the beginning and the end of it. We just saw that. We just saw that scribal tradition. And it happens in every Torah scroll. You'll see it in every single Torah scroll. In order to indicate that this section's not in its proper place, okay, Ramban knows this from Talmud. Nachmanides knows this from the Talmud. Why was it written here? In order to separate the narrative of one punishment and that of another punishment, right? Rashi agrees with this, So he's also quoting Rashi, our, our most famous commentator. Rashi agrees with this. But the rabbis did not explain to, what, what, to us what is this first punishment from which it is necessary to separate the, late, the, the latter verses. For there is no punishment mentioned here in scripture before the verse and it came to pass when they... Left and the ark set out. The language of the Gemara, now he's going to quote what we read, I think. Uh, Yeah, the second one is that they're complaining, they're murmuring, they're mitlo onanim. Um, And Rabbi Hanina says, This teaches us that they turned aside from the eternal. Within three days of their journeying, the mixed multitude felt a lusting, complaining about the lack of meat in order to rebel against God. The meaning of this interpretation of the rabbis, that they set forward from the Mount of the Eternal, indicates a punishment. And that's based on what they found in the Agadah, so the the Midrashic literature, that they set forward from Mount Sinai with joy, just like a child who runs away from school saying, perhaps he will, meaning God, will give us more commandments if we stay. This then is the sense of the expression and they set forward from the mount of the eternal, right? Har Adonai. They set out from Har Adonai, meaning that their intention was to remove themselves from there because it was the mountain of Yothebaveh. That's why they're leaving. It's because it's the mountain of God. Right? So that is actually the first punishable offense. All right, let's look at Zornberg. Um so that's on now 5 of 8. Everything else was uh, Talmud and Ramban. All right, so now we're looking at Aviva Zornberg. They traveled away from the mountain of God, Ramban, that we just looked at, Nachmanides, in the wake of his midrashic sources, which we saw, Talmud and Agadah, intuits an original act of abandonment, of betrayal. Perhaps because the text emphasizes that they are traveling from the mountain of God, the Talmud and the Yalkut detect a primal movement, Hidden from the naked eye, which initiates a process of alienation. At first, the people have no words to express this subtle beginning. The fact that the mountain of God with the tetragrammaton, what's the tetragrammaton? Yudhebai. Right? It's never is never otherwise used to refer to Mount Sinai. Right? So har adonai, har of Yute Bafe is never used other than here. She's saying to designate Sinai. So why is it called that here? She's saying that Nachmanides and other sources intuit that it's called that because that's the reason the people are leaving it. Because it is associated so closely with yud heh with revelation, with their intimacy with God. It's another uh, another Madrashic source. Um, so because it, it's never called that anywhere else, it lends the expression a metaphysical connotation, she says. It is the godliness rather than the mountain that they are fleeing. All right. So I want to stop there for a second. Okay. That's exactly what we're going to unpack. Why why are they fleeing the mountain? Why Why is the Midrash and the Talmud calling this a sin? Why are they leaving? What's the sin in them leaving the mountain? They are leaving God. Okay. Say say more about that. They're leaving God. And I I, listen, people. L- let me just explain. We know this microphone's not working. Okay. We know it. We're working on it. We're trying to find another solution. We're looking into technology about what we can have on the thing that's going to pick up all the voice. So we are really trying. I promise. Um, we're we're trying. But until then, um, talking to that, I'll repeat it if if they don't hear it.
0: I said they left God, and,
1: and I said say more. They left God. Say more. they, they were giving up.
0: They were giving up.
1: They were giving up what?
0: On being a people in exile.
1: They were giving up being a people in exile. How?
0: They wanted, they wish they were back in Egypt.
1: So that's later. Mm -hmm. What's the sin of leaving the mountain, leaving God? What's, what's happening there? Lack of trust and belief. Mark says, what did you want to say? George
0: would interpret it that they, that the, they just got the Torah, or the Ten Commandments, and now they're out. It's a good thing, and they are now going to go live elsewhere.
1: They got the Torah, they got the Ten Commandments. That's good. They're yes. going to go live elsewhere. But the tradition sees it as a sin. Yes, I understand. What's the sin? I don't know. That's what I don't I know, asked. George says. Okay. Turning your back to God. Okay. So from the Midrashic tradition, from what from what we just read, it was just mapped out for us, but we have to unpack it. I get that. Are they not keeping their promise to God? What promise, Deborah? Unmute and tell us what promise are they, are they breaking?
2: Well, when they were leaving, you know, that was a part of the whole process of leaving Egypt is that they were going to... Um... You know, they sought protection, and Moses was going to be their leader. And the expectation was that then they would be, you know, the people who would maintain and and be true to their their covenant to to God to carry out the um uh, a a different way of living that would be more true to being you know, of the people and looking out for each other and maintaining those spiritual practices and traditions that they were trying to.
1: So George says that's what they're doing. Right. They're leaving the mountain to go do that. They can't do that in the desert. They got to go. They're still on their way to Israel to yeah, implement is exactly that. supposed to
2: be you don 't just wait and do it when you get there, you incorporate that and, and begin living it and putting it into practice
1: so you 're suggesting that leaving the mountain of God says they 're not doing what they were supposed to do in in getting Torah, that they 're not observing those laws right we don 't have any evi- we don 't have any evidence that they 're not doing it. then they start complaining. So I know the complaining 's a problem, but part of us has to ask why what does the tradition see? As the first sin. Why is this such a problem that it says they leave Har Adonai? Were they lazy? Mm-hmm. Were they lazy? Lee asks. Victoria, what do you want to say? One word separation, the core of not belonging, leaving. It's like, wow, what a statement to God.
2: <laughs> We're <laughs> out of here.
1: Yeah, just separation, really a sin. Ooh, it is. Okay. So Victoria is saying ours is a communitarian tradition and the communitarian aspects of our tradition are utmost. So by the people separating by them leaving, they're already somehow is what I hear you saying, Victoria are somehow working against that. Right. Um, Against that. Maybe the simple answer is that Jews fetch we're not talking about the fetching yet. That's the third sin. That's the second and third sin. I'm still on the first sin, right? Yes, they fetch. That's terrible. We know that. They get punished for that massively. I'm talking about how is leaving the mountain of God a problem. Emma Linda, speak. Uh, just spitballing here, but like, if you give somebody a book as a gift, that's a really good book to you and you really want them to read it. And they're like, oh, thanks. And six months later, like, did you read that book? And they're like, oh, it's still on my shelf. Is it that they left instead of like sitting down and reading Torah? Beautiful, Emma Linda. Beautiful. I think this is exactly what the tradition is saying when they say they left gleefully, like a kid getting out of school. If we don't leave this mountain where we encountered God and learned about the right way to live, we may get some more stuff we're supposed to do. Let's hightail it out of here. Let's go to recess. Let's go to the monkey bars. I do not want another math assignment. Thank you very much. This is where the Midrash finds the, the beginning of the sinfulness that ends up in a pretty horrible in-your-face insult to God, we want to go back to Egypt. It begins here. It begins with the movement away from obligation. It begins with the movement trying to escape the responsibilities of what it means to be an Amkadosh. what it means to be a holy and responsible people. I was talking to my a partner who could not exactly figure out why I was so excited about this text. And I said, because isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? We say we want to be good people. We say we want to be responsible. We say we want to be mature. We say we want to be enlightened. You know what? Mm-hmm. We don't. I mean, we do, but then we run all the time from what it actually means to actually sit down and actually participate in building that kind of a community, in building that kind of a society. We'd rather binge on Netflix. And we know it's true. This is human nature. We say we want a deep religious experience and a deep spiritual life. How often do we sit in meditation to actually experience a little sense of more intimacy with the divinity that sits within us and beyond us. How often do we come to prayer as a community to actually experience the community being closer to the divine, both within and beyond us? Not so often liberal Jews. And I include myself. I have to, because that's how I get a paycheck. I went into this career because I suspected this of myself, that if I didn't do it for a paycheck, guess what? I'd be binging Netflix. It is part of the reason I became a rabbi. And I think this is the instinct the midrashic tradition has about human nature. We say we are so privileged to have received Torah at Sinai, they couldn't wait to get out of there, Grace says the tradition, they were like, okay, enough with the contact, enough with the intimacy, enough with right, deep spiritual revelations that are going to mean we have to change who we are and how we operate and how we do things. Okay, Mark?
0: You know, it seems to me that uh, in, in uh, going along with Zornberg's uh, notion of a biography of Israel, this ref- this whole situation uh, I think is a very uh, interesting symbolic representation of uh, the whole fundamental process uh, of uh, the very beginnings of ego development, of the separation from the mother and the tremendous ambivalence and difficulty, the uh, aggression that has to be mobilized and so on, and the seeking of another object, the seeking essentially of a father. um, And... uh, the uh, The ease with which any frustration in the seeking of a second object leads back to a regression to a merger with mother and the uh, it, it, it's, but but I think that uh, much of it has to do with the symbolic representation of that And I, I don't want to go on endlessly about the specific details of it, but I think that it has to do with the struggles. To uh, leave uh, Mother Egypt and become separated from Mother objects, uh, and to uh, to uh, attach to an external object or a second object, in this case, God and the Torah, the giving of the commandments, etc., um, as a, as a second object, and in this sense, in Zornberg's sense, a kind of representation of the movement from merger with mother to the beginnings of ego development and the ability, uh, which is always and endlessly ambivalent, to attach to an object outside of the omnipotent provision of mother.
1: Okay. Thank you, Mark. Uh, And we're glad you're back. Um, So, yes, So last year we studied that with Pardes. Um, Ilana Pardes, this whole idea of the biography of Israel, and that this is the moment, right? And I think if we take it further for all of us, you know, that, and I know you, I know you would agree, I think that that always happens for us. That continues to happen for us the rest of our lives. How do we have the strength and the commitment and the discipline? in order to order our lives around an object that we think is loftier than just our own hanging out with mom, right? And on the one hand, you would think union with God would address that. But it seems the Midrashic tradition understands it's not true because union with God actually demands that we grow up, that we take responsibility, that we make hard choices and hard decisions and have to do the hard work of adulting and of running a society and running a responsible community and running a responsible household where our children are taught the right values, where we don't yell at them, even though we really, really, really want to. This is what it means to adult. And that's not easy and it's not fun. However lovely union is, when it comes with demands about being true individuals responsible for ourselves in the community we build, we don't love it so much, All right? I want to look, I'll, I'll close out after this. I just want to look at one more piece because I think here, the Emmett ha- DeVar uh, that Zornberg's going to quote now takes it to another level. An intriguing alternative to this interpretation, meaning they're fleeing because they don't want more homework, right? Like a kid running from school, we don't want to stay because maybe it will get more work. An intriguing alternative to this interpretation is offered by Davar. Their intention, he writes, was to turn aside from the delight, the oneg, that was there at Mount Sinai with God. So they sought to indulge in delights in oneg of the flesh, basar, flesh. On this view, the people exchanged the spiritual ecstasy of Sinai for the physical pleasures of basar meat or flesh their desire for basar begins immediately on leaving sinai even though they never express it in words until after they quote complain over these forced marches so that when they return to weeping which we saw in our text because that word was there in hebrew return to weeping it's like when return where when did we see them weeping before right so but so the just the hebrews suggests they've done this before in the desire episode, they are reverting to an earlier repressed desire, turning aside from a, fasc- a fascination with God. Again, this purposeful misreading, Adonai, right from following God, meaning from being totally fascinated with God. They obey an impulse to flee from the intensity of Sinai to the simpler pleasures of the flesh. It is a turning aside an aversion from one source of bliss and it's substitution by another. Um, and so we're going to get, uh, I just brought you some other texts on um, the fact that um, they early on, like Rashi says, onanim, complaining is, is a pretext of how to separate themselves from following God. Um, and then we have this business about craving meat. Rashi says, um, who will feed us meat? Did they not have flesh? It already says they came up with flocks and herds. They had meats. So that's ridiculous. How, how come they're plague and they don't? They had all these flocks and herds. If you say they'd already eaten them, like they were gone, Rashi says, but it is not, as it, is it not stated at a later period when they were about to enter the land? Now the children of Reuben had cattle in very great multitude, right? It, it turns out, says he, they were only seeking a pretext. To understand more closely the Oneg experience of Mount Sinai, I suggest that we invoke Jacques Lassan's term, jouissance, bliss, joy, ecstasy. LaSanne writes of jouissance as primordial, infinite desire. Hang with me. Particular desires, on the other hand, act as paths, filters, blindings for jouissance, but also as defenses against it. This is so amazing. Desire is a defense, a prohibition against going beyond a certain level in jouissance. Unbounded, unbounded jouissance is annihilating, a fire that threatens to obliterate the self. Desires are bounded by law. The dialectical tension between law and desire thus makes it possible for us to live with some openness to the jouissance that is our deepest wish. Right? 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 Y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy. All right. What is she saying? She quotes the psychoanalyst, I think that's what he is, Lacan, and says, Jouissance is a desire that is so big and so infinite that it terrifies us. And that's the kind of oneg they had at Sinai. It opened up their understanding of the capacity to desire infinitely. And that was terrifying. So they go back to a small desire for Haagen-Dazs because that is not terrifying. That is bounded. You can go to the store if you have enough money, because it's a lot, you can buy Haagen-Dazs and then you sit and you eat it and you can only eat a certain amount before your desire is sated it's it's got limits it's bounded jouissance is not and therefore it is terrifying and that says lacan that zornberg's bringing to answer rashi to say yes rashi's right now we have more modern language for it but rashi's got it it's that they had jouissance they, they got a sense of jouissance at the mountain and they could not tolerate that. That amount of desire for something, just that open desire that we all have underneath everything we do and say and are about. They're underneath that, I think. You'd have to, Siegel, you and Fish and other people are gonna have to help me here. But my sense is that is an underlying reality for us that there is just this boundless desire and you can't even (laughs) fill in the blank for what for connection to be seen to be known to not be alone to not be separate to to just tap into the joy of the universe it's there all the time and it's terrifying because it is insatiable Gavura. so right boundedness being part of the kabbalistic tradition is because I, i think on some level Yes, but I think on another level, gavura is the problem here. They want gavura. They want limits. And so they cut off their access to what really is the only thing that can answer true jouissance, which is the divine. The divine is enough to fill us, I think, or I'm going to make that argument. I'm not going to say anyone else is making that argument. I'm making the argument from all of these texts that I think what they're hinting at is that God is the only thing that can truly fill us when it comes to jouissance. That sense of when we we finally hit it in meditation once every now and then, that feeling of connectedness to everything, that feeling that we're not just floating out here, that we are actually part of everything. Like when those experiences happen, whether it's when we're singing ecstatically, if you're lost in painting something with those moments of flow, those moments where it's just overwhelmingly evident that, oh my God, I'm, I'm full. That's what happens at Sinai. And they can't stand it, right? They can't handle it. They want to go back to craving a craving. They want to crave something limited. They want to crave some glasses that when they put them on, okay. Everything's fixed, right? Bounded, limited, because actually being in touch with jouissance is just too overwhelming and too terrifying. And so they want to crave meat. They don't actually crave meat. They crave a craving. They want to crave a specific thing because that can be filled. They're terrified of their longing that is unbounded. And I think that, that drives so much of our crazy behavior. I think this is exactly true. If we binge on Netflix, we can get a hit and we're satisfied. Then we get, oh, I can maybe start the other episode. What time is it? And I know in an hour, I'm going to be satisfied. Well, they usually leave you hanging, but you've watched another hour of the episode, right? That's manageable. Jouissance is overwhelming. Mark is wondering if, if this is what related to the a portal to the Zohar in what way reconnecting with primal blessing. Um, So I think the Zohar is answering this same need that we just talked about, right? That the Zohar is about how do we open to the own egg of Sinai? What the rabbis are talking about are the ways we don't want to open to the own egg of Sinai, right? Because because it scares the crap out of us to be in touch with that kind of longing, that kind of unbounded desire and I think I think there's something so deep and so wise here, and I think this is the thing this is the reason I got my cabuta I, I told her I, this is why I want to bring this tax because I think this is the major problem of our time. people don't want. From the first explanation, people don't want anymore to do what we have to do to build a society that's not gonna be the ugly one we have right now, right? We, people are not ready to do the work. We're not ready to show up and have hard conversations. We're not. I include myself in that. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. We aren't ready to do it. We're tired. We want the pleasures of the flesh. We wanna sit on the couch And we want to watch television and order things on Amazon that'll come in 48 hours. There was a comedian who says, "Ah, "Prime." that's so yesterday. I, I want a company that's going to anticipate what I want and send it to me two days before I know I want it. It's not untrue, right? That's what we want. We want our desires fulfilled before we even know we have it. 48 hours. We expect any desire we have to be fulfilled. I think it is a very dangerous time we're living in that we are fleeing from Sinai. We are fleeing mehar Adonai, meachare Adonai. We are fleeing from the responsibilities that we know we have to build a just, equitable, fair, decent society. It's just too much work for us. We don't want to have to do it. We don't want to have to be on the PTA. We don't want to have to show up at, You know, the Shriners, we don't want to show up at Rotary anymore. Those organizations, by the way, have been decimated in our time. Those mid-section civil ways of engaging, and I don't mean engaging civilly, I mean civic engagement, that's gone. It's gone. We're not showing up anymore. We want to zoom in. Okay, maybe I'll attend. Maybe I won't. Hopefully it's recorded. And we wonder why it's going to hell in a handbasket out there. I think this teaching is timeless and I think it's particularly poignant right now that we are turning to Basar, we are turning to the pleasures of our, that we can manage, that we can access and we are fleeing from what it would mean to engage in ways that would, would bring us to doing exactly what everyone has said about implementing Torah to build a kind of society that Torah demands that we try at least and create. What's the way out of it? I don't know. But this is a start. Being together like this, digging in, I believe, is a start. I believe everything we do in this building is a start. Watching those kids in there, I have to say, it's a start. Right? We're hopefully raising up a generation where these values will be implemented differently than they are right by the grown-ups in the room right now.